Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. So make sure, so are you hearing me okay? Great, technology works. Um, so this has been a terrific morning. I've really enjoyed these presentations, and uh, of course I'm a wonk about this stuff, but um, I, I learned some new things, some new approaches, and how, how many of you have been here for the morning, just to get a sense? Most of you, great. So um, I can build on some of those remarks, but some of this will be standalone. I, I, I think one of the, uh, the, the, the key points that I want to make sure we, we uh, leave with is that how we vote isn't enshrined in the Constitution in any way, really. Um, you know, there's, there's certain facts about our government that are in the Constitution, but the, the framers had a certain kind of humility about many different kinds of things in a very smart way. And one was, we don't necessarily know how we're always going to want to vote, right? So that they, they said that there will be U.S. House elections. You know, you can't serve in the U.S. House without being elected. There has to be special elections for a vacancy. That's in the Constitution. But the method, the approach, is up to the states. Congress can actually, for, for a House, can step in. But generally, this is up to the states. So there's a whole history of sort of innovation and change and learning and, and not being stuck in our ways. And, and it's easy to forget that, because once we've done something for a generation, there's some assumption that we've always done it that way. But that's not true. I mean, if, if you look at the first 50 years of the country, we, had, uh, we, we didn't uh, vote for Congress always on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. There was pretty much an election for the US House regularly scheduled every month of every year for the first 50 years. Kind of a very different psychology, right? It wasn't like the midterms or something, right? It's just regularly voting. It wasn't necessarily on Tuesday. There weren't printed ballots, right? So think of that. For like decades, there was no printed ballot by the government. So when you think about like ballot access, there wasn't a fight over ballot access because people would just run and then people would find out that they're running and put their name down or, or you know, so, so some mechanism. The parties got strong because they were very good at putting ballots into people's hands. Um, there was a lot of at-large elections for the U.S. House. There wasn't single-member districts in a number of states. There were a number of states that actually voted at-large for a U.S. House. That wasn't normalized until the 1840s and it was interesting, it was a belief that they were gerrymandering at-large elections. States were going at-large to try to help one party win everything. And single-member districts were seen as a way to, to not gerrymander elections, which today might seem funny <laughs> if you know much about what goes on in the creating of U.S. House districts. Um, but uh, the idea of runoff elections also is interesting. There were a lot of runoff elections for early congressional elections, so the first decades, and you, you look at the results, and one of the things that you notice is they didn't just have a second round. They'd have a third round, a fourth round, and a fifth round, because they didn't get majorities. And you're like, 
can't they figure out the rule that you just narrow it down to two and then have a runoff? And of course, someone will win a majority. Why do you think that was hard to do? Anyone can put something I said earlier together with that? There was no printed ballot, right? You couldn't limit it to two, right? So, so sometimes, literally, there would be like seven rounds of elections over 18 months to fill a US House seat. So one reason why we see a lot of plurality voting rules is just practical uh, judgment about just let's get the job done, even if it's not as good as it could be. And that's, I think, actually still often the calculation about runoff elections. Um, I'm going to focus today on ranked choice voting, the debate over runoffs, and, and a plurality. But sort of stepping back and connecting to some of the remarks earlier, I think it's uh, important to connect the choice of rules with what you end up getting from elections. Because candidates and politicians and incumbents are, are operating within the rules and doing what the rules sort of suggest you need to do. It's like, you know, when you think about markets, kind of the, 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 the program here, you know, they're responsive to systems. So I'm really glad you're having like a systemic conversation because we often like blame the people or we, 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 we ask why people are acting this way. Why can't they just be better than however we might judge what better is? But they're following the incentives that are created by the systems and rules that we create. Right, and that we should have conversations about. So if you don't kind of like something that's going on, look at systems, because it's often tied to that. And certainly if you look at, say, the behavior of our legislatures today and the a belief that, say, Congress has difficulty getting things done, if you believe that might be true. One reason that might be true is that we've almost, we, we, we called almost nine in 10 US House races earlier this year using a, a few pieces of information that, don't, that all were from before this year. Just a few different election results. And then we only added thing we added was uh, whether there was an open seat. So if someone has abandoned the seat and there's not an incumbent, then we factor that in. But otherwise, no, no, no changes in our projections. And we can call almost 90% of House races in more than half of all states we call every single race without any information about what's going on now or tomorrow or next year. And we've done that for the last three cycles in more than 1,000 races. And you know how many we've missed? One race. It's that predictable. So if general elections are that predictable, which election might be a little unpredictable? <coughs> Primary elections, right? Nominations. So if I'm someone who has to think about making sure I stay in office, and I'm in one of those 85, 90% of districts where I don't have to worry too much about the general election, I have to be attentive to the primary election. And so that drives behavior in a certain kind of way. Um, so that's a rule thing to, to uh, think about. Um, and, and also, the, the rules about what, what the entry or non-entry of candidates, like Georgia has very bad ballot access laws. You know, it's very hard to get on the ballot in uh, a lot of Georgia elections. Now, is that because the incumbents are worried about losing to libertarians and green parties and independents? Probably not. But what, is, what other rule does Georgia have? It's the land of many runoffs, right? It's the land, the land of runoff elections. And the, uh, say, a US Senate race, 2008, the Republican Saxe Chambliss got 49.8% of the vote and had to do a whole nother election because that's not 50 plus 1, right? Now, there's actually a pretty good argument that 50 plus 1 is a good standard. But if 
that means that a close election, in that case, a libertarian got about three and a half percent, meant, hey, that's, that's a pain, right? <laughs> that, you know, even though the libertarian had something to say, and you know, three and a half percent of people is actually a pretty good chunk of people wanted to support that candidate. Um, so, so anyway, rules have consequences. They affect our choices. They affect our politicians. And so that's the conversation that we're having today. Um, as, as Chris alluded to earlier, and thanks for your good remarks, Chris, is, is the, uh, there's a lot of different things that we can look at. Um, uh, we, we have done work, say, on the electoral college system. And you know, one thing to keep in mind is that when you looked at those turnout, I think it was the top six states were all battleground states. But the, the, the turnout differential between battlegrounds and non-battlegrounds keeps getting bigger. One thing is because it's pretty much the same states every time, and so they're sort of investing in, in those states more than others. They focus their attention on policies more toward those, they pitch their policy issues more toward, toward those states than others. And it's kind of the same states every time, and that gap is to about seven or eight points now, generally. Um, and that's a consequence of rules, and you know, there's a whole conversation about that. The idea of single member districts in our current system um, is, is, I think, an interesting one to, to, to think about alternatives to if one wants general elections to matter and choice to be there um, and for people to think about you know, having the ability to participate and maybe affect their representation. Um, just as we think about geography and the balance between the parties, in the 1990s, uh, the median county was won in the presidential race, say in like 96 in that election by about 15 percentage points. So not that close, but not that separate. The median county was won in, 19, in 2016 by 43% of the vote, right? So you're just like, those county lines haven't been gerrymandered. It's just the voters are, are changing their behavior and or moving, probably more the former, in such a way that we're having just lots of areas that lean one way or the other. You layer single member districts on top of that and you generally have uncompetitive lopsided districts. So if we want to have the US House sort of live up to the standard of the people's house, the one that every two years is like responsive to the people and where the democracy happens in our system, that's something that we may need to look at. As Chris said, there's this idea of the Fair Representation Act. So the um, proposal I wanted to sort of zero in on though today is ranked choice voting, also called instant runoff, because it's essentially trying to duplicate the logic of a runoff election um, in uh, a single trip to the polls. And I said, Georgia has more offices and kinds of elections subject to runoffs, I think, than any other state. And, that, and to me, that's a good thing, because I actually think that upholding majority rule is a good thing. And I think that one aspect of that is in the first round, you're kind of liberated to vote for whom you want. Not entirely liberated, you've got to be a little careful, but you're more liberated to vote for whom you want um, and so that you can uh, have a chance to uh, um, put your best foot forward for the one you like. And if that contributes to not getting a majority winner, then, then, then you can go ahead and have a, have a runoff to make sure you have a majority winner. But there's some potential downsides to that. So if this is, is this my clicker? And just either way, wow, excellent. So um, ranked choice voting is uh, similar to the, the system we heard about earlier, but it's going to be a little bit different. But this is the ballot, essentially, right? So in an ordinary ballot, we don't get to vote for famous Olympic athletes. But, but um, 
we also only get to vote for one of them, right? We, we, we just vote for one. So with a ranked choice election, you're indicating preferences. So this is actually a, a, a real ballot design that's used in current ranked choice voting elections. And voters handle that really quite well. It's interesting to, to see. It's sort of an intuitive process. Um, ballot design in ranked choice voting is, is, is uh, something to, to, to work out. But we find that voters really often have these preferences within them. We did a, a poll. Uh, during the 2016 um, uh, presidential contest, in the Republican contest. Remember, there's so many candidates seeking the Republican nomination. So at the time of the Iowa caucuses, there were still 11 significant candidates running, and we, we did this collaborative poll with the College of William and Mary, um, and we, we, we polled 1,000 likely Republican voters across the country um, who said they expected to vote in a Republican contest. And uh, it had a lot of different poll questions, but one, we, we invited them to rank the candidates. We didn't tell them you had to rank the candidates, we invited them to, and had a nice ballot design for doing so. It was a, it was a YouGov online survey, but it was you know, scientific in, in, in how people could do it. And more than 90% ranked every single candidate, right? So they, they had opinions about Rick Santorum versus Mike Huckabee versus John Kasich and so on. Um, and if you looked at the rankings, there was some real coherence to them. I mean, people seemed to know what they were doing. Um, when they actually went to vote, how many people could they vote for? Right? One, right? So they had it in them. They had more to say. And I think part of what I'm going to suggest is that we should, we should let them start saying it. And th there'll be some good things with it. So that's what you do. Um, it's it's uh, sort of a well-known kind of concept. If some, some of you have sort of been parts of organizations, you might have actually used it. Uh, it's done in lots and lots of associations uh, called preferential voting in a lot of those situations, but, but um, that, that's the basic concept. It was adopted in Maine in 2016, and it, there's sort of some dispute over what's going to happen in Maine, but it's pretty darn likely they're going to use it in the primaries in June at the least. Um, and um, it's used in a dozen cities. It was just used in four cities this past uh, week. Um, and one thing that was exciting for us is that as these use of ranked choice voting settling into some of these places like Minneapolis and St. Paul in um, Minnesota, the candidates are learning how to campaign with ranked choice voting and turnout is, is going up in a really interesting way. It went up 10 percentage points in Minneapolis from about 33 to 43 and it went uh, up even more in St. Paul and I think it's because candidates are out there kind of talking to more people. But that's, that's what you do for, for a voter. Um, so what's going to do with the count? So we heard earlier about a ranked ballot that's a point system, right? And, and like the Heisman Trophy and college football polls, you know, do, do this board account, point system. You give five points to one, th three to this, n another, and so on. That's not what this system is. And there's a reason for that that I'll, I'll mention. But it's one where your, your vote only counts for one candidate at a time which in the, turns out that from a sort of a psychological point of view, that's what most voters want and they get a little nervous if their ballot's helping giving support to more than one candidate at a time because they actually do like someone most usually or certainly that candidate is going to tell them that they like them most and that if you have to sort of give points to multiple candidates, there starts to be sort of different tactical incentives and people don't, don't use the system. So that's not what this is. So you count every ballot, every voter has a, a vote. There counts for their first choice. Let's say these are the results. You see that 50% line up on top. And um, to win with this system, when you're electing one person, you have to get a majority. You have to get 50% plus one. And if you do get a 50% plus one, 
you're done. And you actually never see what the lower rankings were. St. Paul had, uh, it was unexpected because there was a really open seat race for mayor. And this candidate surprised they won in a 10 candidate race by getting over 50%. So that's it. They didn't need to count any other choices. But if you don't get that, then you go to the instant runoff. And it's actually sort of a series of instant runoffs the way it's usually done. So you uh, look at the ballots. The candidate C is in last place. You, you can see how the preferences were kind of allocated here. Um, so the, the voters have, have second choices and their ballots are added to their second choices, right? So every voter just gets their ballot examined. What's the second choice? You look at it. So you look back at, say, that Saxe Chambliss race in, in 2008, where they had a whole statewide election to the tune of like six million bucks or whatever it cost, and, and, and voters having to come back. If they had asked those libertarian voters, who's your second choice? That's all you would have done. Those ballots would have then been added to their second choice, done, right? That's, that, would, that would have been the end of the election. Um, so you, you keep going if you have multiple candidates until someone passes that 50% mark. At the end of the day, some of those votes for candidate A, some of those votes for candidate B might be some voter's second choices or even third choices, but there's that voter's vote, and it's a reflection of what would be a head-to-head, -head, stand up, one-on-one -on -one election if that's all that had been on the ballot. That's why it's called an instant runoff. So uh, we essentially see three systems used really in every non-governmental, sorry, every government election all around the world for, for, for uh, sort of elected office um, is um, either a plurality vote, which we often see, cast a vote, whoever gets the most votes wins no matter what the percentage, or a runoff, the way you do it so often in Georgia, or a preferential vote. So, so let's just sort of compare it to a, to a two-round runoff. Um, on the one side, uh, that, it, that, it's, that it's, it's still trying to get to a majority win, you don't get a second look at the candidates, right? You, you get one look at the candidates, and that's a real difference with a runoff. Uh, it turns out that voters often don't look a second time and they don't come back to vote, but, but they have that chance. But um, you also get a more reliable uh, final round. Like we, earlier we talked about this, uh, looked at this race that just happened in, in Georgia where all the candidates ran in one round. Um, the, 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 the total Republican vote was a majority, total Democratic vote was less than a majority, but two Democrats finished first and second, so the runoff is between two Democrats. You see that in a less obvious way, not that unusual. Like, it, it can happen in runoff elections. It happened in Washington State last year with only five candidates. There were three Democrats in a statewide race for treasurer and two Republicans. The Republican vote was kind of nicely sort of even the Democratic vote was relatively even. That meant that the two Republicans advanced and only, and only Republicans were in the runoff. So that wouldn't happen with a ranked choice election because the, 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 the ballots would sort of go, go one by one. It would sort of get down to a, to a final two slower. So it's sort of a more consensus process. Um, if you look at some of the things going on in runoffs, uh, we have them in a lot of southern primaries. There are 190 runoffs that have taken place in regularly scheduled time since 1994. The average voter turnout decline in those runoffs was 39%, and 183 of those 190 runoffs had declines in turnout. So the only ones that get higher turnout usually are if it's like a, 
big race for governor or some US Senate race where people know whoever wins is going to get elected or something, but that's not the norm. Um, they cost a lot of money. Um, uh, New York City has citywide primary runoffs. It costs 20 million bucks to, to, to do their citywide uh, primary runoff instead of a much cheaper instant runoff. Georgia, it's not six million, but uh, six million dollars in Georgia for, for a runoff approximately. Um, and then these issues of sort of tactical voting. There's also issues, like, like there's controversies of who gets to vote in the runoff or who not, like Alabama is having, going through a whole, you know, Alabama's having an interesting year, but, but, <laughs> but it's taking a long time to fill that vacancy and it's, uh, other things are happening too. But, but earlier in the year, they had a big controversy in the, in the primary runoff because Democrats didn't have a, a runoff, Republicans did have a runoff, and because of some belief that there's been some gaming of runoffs in that way before where one party will jump in the other party's runoff and try to affect who wins, they tried in a state without party registration to say you can't vote in that other party's runoff if you voted in the first round. But then they're now, now prosecuting people over this and so on. And it's pretty messy because maybe some voters did it without intending to or who knows what was going on. Um, and if you had an instant runoff, that would, that, would, that would not happen. You also would just get kind of a consistent uh, voter pool. Um, and then there's this issue of, of fundraising, right? You, if, if the runoff's uh, relative extended, you have long runoffs in Georgia um, tied partly to, to trying to help provide opportunities for, for military voters to, to vote. Um, but it also means, you know, kind of a lot, another whole season to kind of get people interested again in voting and, and raising more money. If it's a short runoff, you've got to like raise big bucks really fast. And that kind of creates some opportunities for being more, more beholden to, um, to, to big money. Um, but if you don't have runoffs, you have other kinds of potential problems, right? And you can get people winning who maybe shouldn't win, right? And it's just sort of the luck of the draw that you end up at the top of the heap. Um, one thing that's interesting is that if you look at runoffs, uh, about one out of three runoffs, uh, Charles Bullock, who's a really top professor in this field, probably the top professor on runoff elections in the country over at University of Georgia, has been doing some, some looking at this. About one out of three runoffs changes the outcome. I mean, the candidate in second ends up winning. So that's interesting when you think about the fact that most, most primaries don't have runoffs meaning it's quite possible about one of three of the people who win those nominations wouldn't have won in a majority contest. Right, that's, that's kind of striking to me. Um, and we actually see kind of a lot of contests like that. It also means it's, it, it's, it sort of incentivizes a certain kind of style of campaigning. Uh, it's it's a kind of go to the base and you don't need to kind of build a consensus. You don't need to learn how to communicate with as many people because if you can win a big field with 33% or whatever, that's, that's, that's all it takes. In 2016, in those, the big presidential field, in all the primaries, it wasn't true of all the caucuses, but in all the primaries, 22 of them before April 19th, not a single one was won with 50% plus one. And of course, there's no runoffs in these state primaries, but they could be doing ranked choice voting if they wanted to, to get a more reliable majority winner. Um, and then there's a quote here about sort of what, what it's, uh, how it's working in, in, in some of the uses there. You see some parties, the, the Utah Republican Party sometimes uses ranked choice voting in their nomination contests, not in their primaries, but in the like, caucuses and conventions. Same with some, uh, some uh, of the parties in uh, Virginia, or the Democrats in Virginia counties. 
um, and, and uh, they've been pretty pleased with it. There was a survey that the Rutgers uh, poll did that, that found in the seven cities that they studied, they did seven cities with ranked choice voting, 14 without it, and they found that there was a sort of a, a notable, um, measurable improvement of campaign tone and stuff. And then part of that is you're trying to reach out to be second and third choices. Um, you could go even further, and actually this may seem like, wow, that's really, really radical, the idea of like not having the state pay for primaries. Well, no state did that before 1900, right? There wasn't a single state in the country where the government paid for party nomination contests. Whether that's a good idea or not, it actually would be something to at least consider because people just aren't participating in primaries very much. And if we could sort of trade that off with having a little more choice in November, maybe that would be something that might make November elections where most people vote uh, better. Um, Louisiana does not have primaries. So that's one example of a state right now. Louisiana, you just go to the general election ballot. If you get a majority, you're done. If not, there's a runoff between the top two. We'd like to see a, a ranked choice system built into that, but um, uh, that's an example. So here's one particularly kind of interesting use of it in the context, in the context of Georgia. Five other southern states have their military voters, they offer them a ranked choice ballot, an instant runoff ballot. Um, and that's Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, South Carolina. Um, and um, what that has allowed them to do is to keep the runoff much closer to the first round, keeping a more kind of single election season. And that seems to, to, to help turnout for the in-person voters. Turnout, the longer you stretch out the season, that seems to, the harder it is for voters to kind of feel consistently attached to the election. Um, and um, so they, they, did it, uh, they did it in the 90s, uh, starting in Louisiana. Then they sort of started this run of it um, more, more, more recently with South Carolina in 2006. But, but as this sort of quote from the South Carolina State Elections Commission's director says, we consider it unqualified success. We had nothing to heard good things from voters about it. Partly because I think like, voters tend to like the ranked choice system, in, including military voters. But I, one study showed that about 90% of South Carolina military voters get their vote counting in the runoff as compared to that 39% drop off that we generally see for uh, in-person voters. So it shows that, you know, it's sort of working, working for people. Now, Georgia doesn't do that. So that's an option to, to think about. One uh, possible consequence that was debated in 2014 or, or considered was the governor's race was pretty close, the US Senate race was pretty close. If they had both, in the general election, if they had both gone to runoffs, under current state law, there'd be a December election runoff for governor and a January runoff for Senate. So two separate runoffs, just to, because they, they don't accommodate the military voters, or you don't, Georgia doesn't accommodate military voters as well in state offices, but under federal law, they have to give them more time for the federal one, and so there's two different runoff laws. So it uh, doesn't seem as efficient as maybe it could be, and, and, and one approach could be offering um, overseas voters that, that ranked choice ballot. So uh, let's see what else I have up here. There's, there's some other sort of interesting uses of it. Um, you know, Atlanta's having a runoff right now. Some, sometimes cities often have relatively short turnaround runoffs. They could do that, that military uh, overseas runoff ballot. This was a sort of an interesting one in the presidential season. 
Um, Republicans had that big field, and then as the contest started, people start dropping out. And check out that you know more than 500,000 votes were cast for withdrawn candidates when it was still a real contest. Marco Rubio got more than 15% of the vote in Arizona after he had dropped out um, because a lot of people voted early. Um, and, a, and it disproportionately affects military voters who get their ballots like 40 days before the election and they return it, they're that much more likely to vote for someone who's, who's dropped out. So an idea is they could give, offer them a ranked choice ballot and then have that count for the highest ranked person who is still in the running. Um, so uh, there are questions about ranked choice voting. It's new, it's novel, um, and, and, and one of the the, the, the big ones we have to address, certainly that's been an issue for talking about it here in Georgia, is that voting equipment sometimes can't handle it. The, we know the voters can handle that ranked ballot, but you have to have equipment that can register it, keep those rankings intact, allow you to sort of tally them in a way that, that, that all of the voters' intent is, is upheld. And, um, and, 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 and that's not true of all voting equipment. We're getting to a point that that will be true of all voting equipment. There's a group called the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center that's been uh, very attentive to kind of working with vendors and state election officials and so on to help it get to a point where this is just a straightforward policy option, but it's not always there. And you certainly want to have, make sure voters understand it. They don't, they don't need to necessarily fully understand it, but the better, under, the better they understand it, you know, the, the, the more that they'll, they'll use it, you gotta make sure you, you know, it's not a point system, you know, your ballot won't count for your second choice unless your first choice is out. You know, just really invite people to use the, the rankings, um, which is the why to rank, not just how to rank. And if there's a close contest that changes outcomes, you know, voters need to understand how that happened. In a runoff election, you can kind of understand how it happened. You've got to get that same understanding with a ranked choice system. Uh, there are some legal issues that vary kind of state to state. There's no federal um, constitutional or statutory issue about ranked choice voting that gets in its way, but there sometimes can be a state issue, and that's something that needs to be um, looked at. So some people are concerned about, you know, there's sort of studies, if you kind of Google, you'll, you'll, you'll find that, or word search, um, you, you, will, you will find that um, there is um, some people that don't like ranked choice voting as much as we do. Um, and, and, and certainly it's, it's, it's worth having a, you know, conversation about all these concerns. Um, one, one study suggested based on five mayoral elections in San Francisco, three with runoffs and two with ranked choice, that that it hurt turnout. Um, we thought there was not a very good study. There's, there, there, there's been sort of a more comprehensive one that didn't find that finding. What it did show for sure is that um, uh, when you eliminate one round of election, it's almost always a lower turnout election than, than the one you keep, right? So that it, it preserves turnout uh, in, in, in decisive elections. What was really interesting is this last election season, last week, as I mentioned, the turnout rose in all these cities with it, and it seems to be that, that the candidates are kind of realizing that it in, invites them to just run in ways that brings more people out. Because if you talk to someone and that person says, I've, I've made my choice, and I'm sorry, you're not my person, it's like, well, I can, I can understand that, but I really would like to talk to you about why I'm, I should be your second choice, right? And so it just promotes a certain kind of engagement and extra reason to talk with people and the voters to learn about more candidates. And that's kind of a neat aspect too. I think it's, we do have some, some relatively low information voters out there and this kind of creates some incentives for people to just find out more about the candidates and their choices because they get to do more than just one thing. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of stuff about like, you know, 
getting into the sort of Arrow's theorem and the complexity of, of, of ballots and, and, and uh, the fact that you can always find a flaw in every approach, right? So the flaw with ranked choice voting is that a candidate can be in last place, but say be everyone's second choice, right? So candidates in last place, but everyone's second choice. And so theoretically, if that candidate had been matched up against every other candidate, they would have been able to beat, it, beat every other candidate. Uh, but they got eliminated in ranked choice voting because they were in last, last place. So you, know, so you have to sort of have these trade-offs with every system. Turns out that that doesn't, that almost never happens. So this beats all, el all else kind of winner, the Condorcet winner, they, they call it, um, that almost always happens. In fact, like every election uh, in the Bay Area, and there's been more than, I think, 120 with ranked choice voting at this point, has has uh, that, that candidate has, has won. But it could happen, and that's a reflection of the fact that there's no, there's no perfect system. Um, the, the thing that, that we see as particularly valuable once you get into the sort of rabbit hole of, of lots of other systems is it's the only one that definitively doesn't, of the sort of the major alternatives that people talk about, where you can indicate a preference for a second and third without it hurting your first choice. There's, sort of, there's something called the later no harm criterion. And, and once you realize that, that's quite liberating for what you do as a voter, right? You can just use the system as intended, and people do. If that wasn't true, in these real elections that, uh, that is being used, you would find out awfully quickly, quickly that voters respond to that because the, they don't know the outcome. They, they, they don't know what's going to happen. And if you really want your first choice to win, you know, let's say it's the presidential race and you know, I just really want Jeb Bush or John Kasich or someone who like, seems like they're a, they're a long shot to win, but I want them to win, right? I don't want to necessarily just give up on them and rank someone else second that might give them points and help me defeat that or there's approval voting as this other system or these other approaches. And, and, this, and ranked choice voting is like, hey, I go all in with my first choice. And if they're in last place and they're out, then my ballot goes to my second choice. And then when, once that's sort of out there, people tend to use the system. About nine out of 10 people in these contested mayoral races are, are ranking um, second choices, which is, which is a good, good uh, indication that it sort of does what it's supposed to. So let me just go quickly through Georgia runoffs. Um, I won't spend much time on this, but I sort of pulled some, some data. So you know, Georgia has, has lots of runoffs. Um, they don't have it for everything. So like presidential primaries can be won with well under 50%, you know, and that's true of all the primaries, and that I think can be controversial. Um, Democrats are probably much more likely to go through that in 2020 than the Republicans, but then the next open seat for Republicans will happen to Republicans too, and you know, someone, someone could be winning who isn't really the consensus person. Um, and it's not used for a lot of general elections, it's just I think only used for the statewide general elections, I, I believe. Um, and then some, some cities uh, don't have runoffs. So this is just a one year of voting in Georgia. So I just thought it'd be fun to look through a couple of them. So there was a runoff election on November 30th, 2010. That had really, really low turnout, which you'll see in a second. There was a regular election, there was a primary runoff election, there was a primary, there was special, you know, congressional special election runoffs. There's a lot of elections that happened. Not every voter could vote in each one of these elections, but in most of them, most voters could. And, um, and that's a lot to just sort of ask of people, and you could have eliminated a whole lot of these runoff elections and upheld majority rule with, with ranked choice voting. Here's just another sequence. This is a, a little over a year. This is 13 months of, of voting and sort of bolded where, where there's runoff elections that theoretically could have been combined into 
to a, uh, an, an instant runoff. Um, the state doesn't pay for those runoff elections, right? That's the local government. So it's, so it's a real kind of mandate on, on local governments, pay for our policy. Um, and it's about a dollar per, per registered voter um, across the state, more than five million statewide. Some of the smaller counties, from what we can tell, seem to pay, spend a lot more. Um, so um, we, we have examples of about $5 per registered voter in some of the smaller counties. Um, turnout, now one thing that was interesting in Georgia, the runoffs kind of used to quote unquote work better um, back, in the, uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Of course, runoffs in Georgia and southern states have been around for a long time um, because it used to be such a one-party bastion for, for Democrats that whoever won the Democratic nomination was, was, always, was pretty much always going to win um, back in, you know, before the 60s. And so uh, uh, they, they had a runoff, a two-round system in many southern states that, that had this. And so as runoffs were sort of common and people experienced them, um, the turnout would sort of maintain itself in the, the runoff. So in almost half of runoffs in the 60s and 70s, actually into the 80s, uh, turnout generally in about half of races actually was as high as higher in, in the runoff. Now it's down to like one in 10 races. Or so, so it's just not kind of working on the same way that it used to. Um, so these are, these are some concrete examples of runoffs. So that was that 2010 race that I mentioned earlier. So in the November election at the bottom, you could see this is a Supreme Court race. It's a nonpartisan race. But it's 48, 35, 17, essentially. Um, and so it goes up to 67%. So he you know, got a surge in, in votes. Well, well, actually not, right? So over a million votes in November, that translated into 48% of the vote, then got 176,000 votes in the runoff, and that translated into 67% of the votes, because so, you know, almost a 90% drop off in turnout. Um, so this is, this is an example of, of, of a race that does go to a runoff. Um, this was the, you know, the most expensive congressional race in American history, um, which just took place in your state. Um, so this was the, the first round. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting is, is that if you look at the, all the, the votes for, for Democrats in the first round, it was about 49% of the vote. Ossoff ends up you know, with about 48% in the runoff. Um, one thing that's also true in, in, in light of that kind of fact that if, you know, if, if how votes kind of split is matters, like if that Democratic vote hadn't been all around one person but it had been around two people, right, if they'd had sort of two strong candidates and they got like 25 and 23 or something, then the runoff would have been only between Democrats, right? It's sort of like there's, so, so, there's, so the runoff changed the outcome in, in a way that was more reflective of, of the district, but at the same time, it easily might not have been that way, sort of depending on how votes had, had broken in the first round. Here, here was an example of, that was this, this is a Saxby Chambliss runoff, where uh, this was uh, back in 2008. And uh, that, this year, Barack Obama got about 47% of the vote in Georgia, and you know, the Georgia candidate for US Senate got about that, that margin, that uh, percentage. So that triggered a whole, a whole runoff. Turnout dropped, it didn't drop as massively as it does for these low, less high profile races, um, but it did change the outcome, or didn't change the outcome, but, it, but, it, but this next one, which was the same year, does change the outcome. 
So the, you know, again, with that Democratic vote being 47, 48%, in uh, this case, that actually had the Democrat being, being in first, and uh, the Republican second, the Libertarian vote, which, you know, based on this evidence, claims to, to be pretty clearly coming out of the Republican base, um, changes the outcome. So these are just a few resources that we have about this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, one site I'll just highlight, this rankit.vote. It's, um, it, it's a, 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 an app where you can create your own ranked choice voting contest and tell your friends to vote in it and check it out and sort of an opportunity to see if you think it works. Um, and then uh, rankedchoicevoting.org is this, this website. That's a good one for, um, for election officials. Um, so this is, that's sort of a, 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 an advocacy argument for ranked choice voting, but I, I think it's a good idea. I also think that there are questions about it. There's, there's, there, there, there's things to make it work, but sort of connecting to the earlier um, presentations is the, the opportunity to, to be able to say more with your ballot, to be able to simple change of sort of second and third, third choices uh, which voters seem generally ready to do, creates like a whole new opportunity for conversations and sort of learning um, both from the voters and sort of with the voters, right? You know, the voters um, have uh, new incentives to learn things and, it, and, and, it, and, and the voters' voice is just that much more heard. And I think one thing we sort of see consistently out in our politics right now is that voters are feeling not as heard as much as they want to, right? Some of that is sort of the restriction on their choice, and that's the candidates that are presented, but the restriction on what they can do, the sort of the restriction on their vote, which is sort of when you can only vote for one, that's another way that our voice is limited. And uh, we think it's time as, as, as we look ahead, and as, as we look ahead to a country that is changing um, in interesting ways. You look at this, this, the, the new generation of young Americans, um, they are much more likely not to register in the major parties. They often have a major party preference, but they don't want to be kind of bound by that. Um, they're sort of hungry for a less binary set of options. And this ranked choice system is, 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 is a way to kind of reflect that and kind of bend. It's sort of kind of like bend toward, toward, toward giving voters some more voice, more choice. Um, and uh, we think it's uh, a, time to, 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 to put it forward as an idea in more places. And Georgia seems to be a place where you're already upholding majority rule uh, with the idea of runoffs, and here, here's a way, almost an efficiency argument, um, to, to get it done more faster, cheaper, better. So thank you. I, I'll just go right to questions now. Okay, we can go to questions at this point. Yep. Is there any sense of how that would have played out if there had been a ranked choice structure? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and it, it's, it's an interesting one, and there is. And one thing that's always tricky is to sort of assume the candidates would have behaved the same in different rules, right? We don't know if the national popular vote would have gone the same way if that's how the candidates would have been running, and we don't know 
how the candidates would have behaved if they'd been in a ranked choice system versus vote for one. However, if you just kind of layer it on to what they were doing, um, it is interesting. So in the, uh, when we did that College of William and Mary survey, um, Trump is ahead by about 10 points with 34%. Uh, Cruz is in second, and then it goes on down from there. This is when Cruz was sort of at his peak at the time of the Iowa caucuses. He ends up winning in the ranked choice election. When Rubio goes out, he, he's the, the last person to go out when it kind of gets down to three, three candidates. His votes overwhelmingly go to Cruz over um, uh, Trump. Uh, it's like, but it's very close. It's like 52-48 or something, but, but, but it does change it. Um, there was a couple pollsters, they regularly asked second choices, and that, that was pretty interesting. And then a, this one uh, pollster, public policy polling, does a lot of like, if it was only two, who would you vote for? If it was only three, who would you vote for? And you can actually simulate pretty accurately, just based on these numbers, what would have happened with a ranked choice system. And in that big Super Tuesday primary, did Georgia vote that day? Like, yeah, first, yeah, like, so I think Trump won, like, swept nine out of ten or something like that. Um, and uh, in this, using the numbers from, from I think, eight states, we, we think he only for sure would have won two or three of them and would have for sure lost several of them and then a couple were sort of in, in a place. South Carolina, which was a really key contest, which where Trump won with 32% won all, won all the delegates, um, that would have flipped um, pretty definitively with a ranked choice system. Now again, that wasn't the rules that they were playing in, but, um, but, I, but I think that if, if I sort of imagining a world of, of a ranked choice system being put in place there, I just think that um, Trump would have campaigned differently, frankly, right? You know, a little less of the attack on, you know, little, you know, little Marco or, you know, whatever. Like, you, know, you, 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 you need to learn how to, to build a majority, um, which I think is a healthy, a healthy thing for our politics. It's hard to know what it would have done for the actual result, but if you sort of layer it on, it's, it's interesting. Now, Democrats are in that sort of space now, right? They're, they don't have a front runner, probably 15, 20 people running. It'll be very interesting to see, you know, kind of is, is it just the one who can kind of mobilize, mobilize their base? And that might not be their strongest nominee, but it's probably going to be the one that they end up with. Well, one thing that's interesting about ranked choice is it doesn't, it's, you, there's sort of no tactical, like, like if it's plurality, whether someone is in or out can have a huge impact, right? Like, because if you take, you know, because there's no second choices, right? Like if, you know, if Ross Perot doesn't run for president in 1992, who knows, you know, it would have been a different year. Um, with ranked choice voting, it doesn't matter whether ranked, you know, as long as the Perot voters rank someone second, it, it, it really doesn't, affect the outcome in, 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 in the same way. The concerns you're worried about Jesse, you know, the board account method. Yeah. And it's a relevant alternative, so let's get it. Yeah, so some of the different methods, like there's a system called approval voting, which has a, a nice sort of simple logic to it, right? Hey, candidates are running, approve of as many as you like. X vote for as many as you like. Just say, I'm going to vote for those three people. I'm going to vote for that, those six people, those two people, whatever it is. And however many you vote for, they each get a vote. And the, the one who has the highest share of the vote wins. And so you could have it be 67 to 62 to 54 and so on, right? More people could get over half the votes than just one, right? Because you're voting for multiple people. 
The thing that happens when they ever try approval voting in anything re resembling a close a contested election is voters just stop doing it, right? Because they don't want their second choice to beat their first choice, right? And so, 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 so it does affect kind of, it becomes more like a plurality contest and then who's in or out uh, matters. There's sort of blackboard ways that you can kind of look at a ranked choice system and, and imagine whether someone in or out like f leads to someone being in last place or not and so on. But in the, in the real world of elections, it just doesn't seem to affect behavior that way and it really rarely affects results. It, it uh, is much more kind of liberating for, for voters just to have the choices they want. Now it does mean that you know, Georgia could relax its ballot access laws and I don't think you know, libertarians would suddenly go from 4% to 70% or whatever it is that they win, but they, but they would be able to run and get their ideas out there and no one would be saying, oh, you're, you're, a, you're a spoiler. I mean, we were, our founding chair was John Anderson who had run for president in 1980 um, and that's sort of a, a founding belief that we should be able to have people run and not, not just be called names for it, right? That they should be able to just put their best foot forward. Um, but I think that the, the lesson from other countries using this is that it doesn't mean that those candidates necessarily win, but they get a fair shake. And that's, that's I think, a, a good American approach to things. Yeah, I mean, I think the two parties are major parties for a reason that, that, that there is, you know, that, that, is, that as long as they are being responsive to kind of large groups of people, they're going to be major parties and, you know, that's why they're major and they're going to keep having large numbers of votes. When they are not being responsive and not being accountable, I think ranked choice voting is sort of a, a, a pressure valve being released you would almost certainly see votes start to grow for third parties and independents. It wouldn't necessarily like explode overnight. And the major parties have a chance to correct, right? Because, and one of the ways they have a chance to correct is they need to be competing for their second and third choices. So they need to learn as that pressure kind of grows from someone, they need to learn what's making those voters tick to kind of earn their second and third choices and therefore actually continue to be attractive to those voters. Um, but if they just don't do that and they just kind of like ignore them or whatever, then you know, ranked choice voting creates space for, 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 for someone to grow. And that's, I think, sort of a healthy, a healthy accountability. Um, but I think you're right that you know, the fact that Georgia has their runoff law, Louisiana has a runoff open system, and you know, third parties aren't kind of taking over uh, Louisiana either, but, but, it's, but they can run, right? And they can be part of our politics. Maine, just a quick story on Maine, just you know, they passed it as a ballot measure in 2016, uh, second highest vote in the state's history. Um, a state Supreme Court advisory opinion suggests it wasn't constitutional for use for November elections for governor and state legislature, but still was legal for everything else, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, and primaries. But then there was an ex a whole fight in the legislature about whether to just completely repeal it. They ultimately effectively did after sort of brinksmanship and fights for like six months. And um, now there's a referendum petition that'll probably get on the ballot just to restore it for the legal uses. And that'll be on the ballot in June almost certainly and actually put ranked choice voting back in play for the primaries so the voters will have a real chance to use it and decide whether to keep it. So that's gonna be actually you know, pretty interesting for us obviously.
Other questions? Yeah. Um, yeah, about the, the mechanisms of an RCV uh, ballot, in terms of ballot spoilage, all right? So let's say you have three candidates, and you have a small handful, or probably a good amount, of uh, voters that only fill in one or, two, one or two, or only fill in one. Right. Does that alter your counting? Are those spoiled? How does that work? Yeah, voters don't, uh, in Australia, interestingly, they generally mandate rankings. They have compulsory voting and compulsory ranking. They just like really want you to like force you to choose. Um, but we don't, none of the places using it in the U.S. and I, none of them that I know of are expecting to require rankings. So it's just creating an option. Voters tend to want the option when they have a race that's more interesting to them. So mayoral races, like 90% are, are, are validly ranking someone second, but 10% aren't, right? In St. Paul, it was about 25% this year. Um, and uh, that's their choice. Um, and if the ballot counts for the first choice, let's say your first choice is, is a relatively weak candidate and, and they lose, and then your ballot's supposed to go to your second choice and you don't have anyone, then at that point it's just set aside as if you hadn't, you know, that you've abstained among your remaining choices. Um, and so you generally see, when you see a ranked choice election that's kind of competitive and goes to like five rounds of counting or something, generally about kind of the 10% of voters from the first round won't be left by the final round. You know, but 90% still will. But what, what percentage are kind of thrown out before even the first round of counting because they marked it wrong? Yeah, you know, so that's really good news for, for ranked choice voting advocates. It's really small. Uh, so like Bay Area, like Oakland, which is a very kind of like diverse, lots of low-income voters. Um, they had an election for mayor, first time use of it, where they were also voting for governor and bigger elections. So a lot of people at the polls um, and uh, the number of people that skipped the race went down from before, so more people chose to vote in it, and one out of 300 invalidated their ballot. The rest didn't. So that's, I thought, was a really, that of those who chose to vote in it. And to invalidate, you just have to vote for two first choices, right? Or do something that you can't who, clarify who are your first choices. Um, but you will see people do, you know, <laughs> people are interesting, you know, people will, will like only go in and rank a third choice or something, you're like, hmm, what, what are we doing here, right? You know, but, but um, you know, it's not, it's not that many, so that's the encouraging part. By the way, when California first went to the top two primary, which is basically like the Georgia special election system, uh, in, in those same voters in Oakland, this is in 2012, the ballot error rate was, was about one in 33 voters, much, much more. But no one talked about it because it didn't seem like that was a complex system. And it's sort of like their thinking was ranked choice voting is complex, so then let's talk about it. But actually when there was an election where the voter error rate was 10 times more, the media was just uninterested in the story. Other questions? So there's this bright light. Yeah? If every voter, in a three candidate race, if every voter ranks at least two, you're for sure gonna get more than 50% of the first round in the final round. If you, uh, if you don't do that, and some people like only vote for, like, so let's say the candidate in third loses and like half of those voters chose not to rank someone else second, then you'll get a majority of the, the final round votes. You always get a majority of the final round vote, but the number of voters in that round may be smaller and that, that majority is not the same as the first round majority, if I, you know what I mean, right? Well, I guess my question is, let's say there's eight candidates in the race. Yeah. In a ranked choice system, if you're talking about a main, for example, I guess you're going 
guess you can choose three, your top three of those names. Well, it depends on the uh, main. You can do up to six. Um, and it's actually tied off into sort of ballot design, like sort of ballot space restrictions. Uh, the Bay Area, it's generally three. Uh, Minneapolis, it's three. But it's totally tied to their current technology. When they have a, the method to do a better ballot design, they'll do more. The, the best ballot design looks like that one I showed at the beginning, where you just list the candidates once and then have kind of columns. And you can actually get like 10 rankings in um, pretty easily. Um, and then it's a question of whether, you know, you want to do that, and, and six seems to be a kind of a good, a good number uh, just to kind of deal with that kind of big, big candidate race. It was interesting to me, though, that, that Republican ballot that we did in the, 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 the College of William & Mary poll, that you know, 90% wanted to rank all 11. And actually, they did it in an interesting way. In fact, sort of related to the Trump question, he was the plurality leader, and he was the plurality last place candidate. That was uh, back, in, back in February of 2016. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.